Hey, Rich Ciade. Hey, Paul Ford. We're the co-founders of Postlight. We are. And Postlight is an agency that builds products, apps, websites, things like that. Yeah. Right in the heart of New York City, right above Union Square. Mm -hmm. And this is Track Changes. Welcome. Our podcast. It is our podcast. So we're not just here by ourselves. Not today. We've no. got a, we've got a great guest with us today. We've got Rex Sorgat. That was him. He's a B. <laughs> Rex, hello, hello, hello. It's going to take oh. a lot <laughs> to pull this off for an hour. Okay, so so Rex, Rich and I have been told that we have to bring the energy up when we have guests. Bzzz. Yeah, oh, that's it. Okay. That's it. Right. So we're gonna, you're going to see us. Two slightly crabby men in their forties <laughs> uh, in the morning at a podcast studio, bringing that energy up. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. Well, it's, I am pumped. This is uh, this is like one of my favorite podcasts. I'm really happy to be on. Here. Oh, that's big. I ain't to just hear saying that. that. Thank no, you. You want to quiz me on like, previous episodes? He's <laughs> not just saying it. He he wrote me an email. He's like, "Hey, you guys have a pretty good podcast." And I was like, "Well, okay, really cool. guess what's going to happen now?" It's completely awkward when time. I, I, we we had an event recently, and someone came up to me and said. You're the only podcast I listen all the way through, and I was I couldn't. I said, "Wow, I don't really know how to process this. I'm tr- I'm struggling with it. I'm not going to lie." Well, th- there is this weird thing that's happened lately. Where have you noticed if you run into a friend that you haven't seen for a while, and you don't know exactly what they're up to, you can just say, "I love your podcast," and you'll yeah. be right. Yeah, you're totally fine. <laughs> And the other thing, oh, man. I mean, that's that's the weird. News. No, but I really love this podcast. I'm not just saying that. That's a weird new social protocol, right? Though, because like you kind of have to pretend that you don't know anything about the other person, even though you often know a lot about what's going on. It's true. The other thing too is there's, it's very high risk because everything's really blurry. There, like you follow 45 billion Twitter accounts, you know they might have gotten a new job, but then they might not have. That could be easily blurred in. Or with... you could it just dives right into something really intimate. So you haven't seen yeah. someone in two years, but you're following them on Twitter. So sorry you about, run into them. And sorry say, about the loss of your father. Yeah, sorry how's about your the, knee? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's strange. So, but this isn't about. Twitter. Twitter. Well, it, probably will end up about Twitter. It's always about Twitter. What the hell can <laughs> you always. do? So, Rex, give us a background before you became an adult. Where are you from and education influences that got you on the path you went on? So, I grew up in a really small town, a remote little place called Napoleon, North Dakota, which wow. is a. It's like an hour and a half from really anything that would resemble civilization. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, pre-internet, of course, but pre-cable TV. Well, pre-internet in Napoleon, for sure. Yeah. There there were people that existed in the world who had dial-up access, but it was not even an option for us. So you couldn't couldn't have even gotten You couldn't get the AOL There was one kid in all of town who had a computer, and of course it was just floppy drives that his dad used for some accounting software that was never connected to the internet. Was that interesting to you at all, or were you just sort of like, oh, that's the guy with the computer? I mean, I'd love to. I talked to some people who have these great origin stories about, you know, these moments where they started hacking the box. I, I just never had one of those. I, I think I, the first time I played with a computer was probably college. I'm pretty sure that's true. At least something that was connected to the internet. That's for sure. Okay, so you go to college. Do you have a mission in mind? Do you know what you're going to focus on yet? Or are you just going to college? Oh, I, I mean, I was a complete clueless dilettante and didn't really okay uh, i was started pre-med and yep. i ended up getting three degrees because i wanted to do everything in the world got and, it well where's college well i i ended up st- uh i ended up staying in north dakota i went to the university of north dakota which okay. um is actually like a big state school mm-hmm. it's it's a if you've had a 
big state school experience. It was pretty typical of that. So mm-hmm. it was eye-opening, truly. Mm-hmm. Like every everyone goes to college and it's a big deal. For me, it was like a really big deal, though. All of a sudden, I was introduced to books and music that I had never had known even existed. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you drift into the computer lab? I did. I, uh, I actually remember I had to go to the computer lab to do a paper. I went at night, and I remember seeing all these creepy kids in the basement who were had trench coach and this was like the denizens of the night in the computer lab and i thought boy these people are the worst and two weeks later those were my best friends yeah <laughs> what were they doing mudding yeah they were playing yeah i know i yeah they were on the serves they were you know, yeah. alt dot whatever whatever yeah yeah do we have a hypothesis for why trench coats are attractive to that particular <laughs> cohort i think i had one too now that i think about it yeah. so uh, I, well, the Matrix was a moment, but that's later. No, that's it's, later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't really. I think. I mean, they're kind of cool. They're kind of swirly. You could get them at thrift stores. They're capy. They, yeah, they also kind of cover up physical inadequacy yeah, in a very proactive way. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, like you can be kind of cool looking in a trench coat, but yeah. still not in anything approaching good physical shape. Yeah, you can hide drugs, I guess. True, definitely like Japanese swords <laughs> go into a trench coat. Nunchucks come. There out. was this crew from my high school that used to wear trench coats and go to the mall, and they would just hang out by the food court and just go to Orange Julius, but they'd be in trench coats, and it would be July. Right. I think it was sort of the, the light equivalent of a biker gang. It, w- it was a way to associate with one another. Yeah. So the four of them were cool about doing this together. Like, no one of them would ever do that. Like, you sure. wouldn't see one of them drifting off on their own, going to H&M, yeah. wearing a trench coat. Going to Sam Goody and but buying they, they like did it ministry together. cassettes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They, it was kind of a together. It was sort of like a bi- like a biker gang a little bit. That was my my experience with it. I wasn't. I did not wear one. I, no, not that I had any issues with it, nor did I discriminate against them in any sort of way. You just weren't a trench coat guy. I just wasn't a trench coat guy. I it's a dark trench coat, too. That's the yep. thing. Yeah. Always. You yeah. can't wear like a regular off-the-shelf London fog. Yeah. I don't even know what story yeah. that tells. Beige with the lapels. Yeah, I that. had that. Like, <laughs> I, I was never cool enough to even be in with the trench coat kids. I like, think also the fiction and the, and the sci-fi they got into might have had... There's definitely like there's cut, definitely you know escapism to it. There was a movie called Dark Man that starred, yeah. I think, Liam Neeson as like a, a tragically movie. disfigured superhero who it's very trench coat centric, very and kind of off center, non mainstream, just like it hit the spot. And, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that the, I could see that being a strong influence. Okay, but this isn't about trench coats, isn't it? I think this, <laughs> this really is about, is about trench coats. So Rex, <laughs> let's do a whole hour on this. All right, so easy. You, you finish college, <laughs> uh huh. Oh, you said you got three degrees? Yeah. So you wouldn't leave. This was like seven years? Six, yeah. Six years. So you're just hanging out. I loved college, man. <laughs> University really. of North that Dakota. Makes, that's I was so good at okay. it. Yeah, you'd found the place. You're <laughs> like, you'd been in Napoleon, and you're like, it doesn't sound like Napoleon was this horrible experience, but... It wasn't. It was just a very small town, and then suddenly being around people that I could choose as friends, which was a brand new thing, because when I graduated from high school, I had it was 27 kids in my class, and it was the same 27 kids that I started kindergarten with. Wow. And they were almost all in the same class, and so you never got to choose right. any kind of friendships. They were just... So, but college there. is not in Napoleon. College is it, in... It's in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Okay. Um, that was the furthest that anyone I had ever known had gone for college. Yeah. And it was still in-state. Yeah, but still, it's a small city. There's a big library. Yeah. Like, you have... Mm-hmm. It's a life, suddenly. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a normal college town, I'd say. It's just that 
I meet people here all the time who talk about how they just missed getting into Yale or whatever. And I could, and I just laugh so hard. I, I don't think I knew where Yale was. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, not only did I not know anyone who went to Yale, I didn't know anyone who went to the University of Montana. Right. Like, I, I had no conception of that outside world. Yeah. It would never have occurred to me that I, that I had any skills or interests or capabilities to even get anywhere near going to a place like that. No, I mean, you might, you've read about them in, like, a children's book. Barely. Like, I, I honestly not sure. If you said Princeton, I'm not sure what, I would have known what state it's in. Like I, sure. I was really that disassociated from, mm. and I was a, I was a good student. I just had no relationship to the, lore. the outside world. Really, the yeah. lore of East, the L O R E, the lore of East Coast privilege. That's like right. you just didn't. I remember when I first moved here, I got a job at a little internet startup on the Upper West Side above a Jewish community center because it was like no one knew what to do with the internet, and they're like, okay, we'll go there, and um, everyone had gone to Harvard. And when they were interviewing, they would talk to the, like, other people would come down from Harvard and be like, oh, I want to do the internet. And they'd go meet the co-founders of the company, and they'd be like, hey, what what house were you in? You know, or what ha- hall? And be Lowell or whatever. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there watching in my, like, my sweatshirt writing HTML. Like, what just happened? I, I couldn't understand anything going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, New York is, like, triply alienating that way. So, and we, wait, we should point out. Uh, Rex wrote a really great piece, uh, one of the pieces I truly enjoyed in the last year uh, for Back Channel, which is, um, I think it's just backchannel.com. It's not, yes. back, yeah, okay. It's called Netflix and Chili. Yeah, I, I regret to say that was actually my title. And the editor <laughs> tried to talk me out of it. It's one of those rare cases where the editor <laughs> should have won. <laughs> uh, it turns out that you were a little too strong willed there. So, in this piece, you write quite a bit about growing up in Napoleon. Yes. So you you went back uh, last winter. Yeah. So the great the great conceit was that I had gone back for a high school reunion a few years ago, and I started thinking about what has changed about the place in twenty five years. And it's the same twenty seven people. Yeah. It, most of them still live there. Still live on farms. And it was amazing to me when I started thinking about it. Nothing has changed. Most places, there's some sort of gentrification or ungentrification, or there's a Walmart that opens, or, or there's the big company that opens or closes. S- something happens to the place. But Napoleon was exactly the same. Nothing big had moved in. Nothing had left. It's still graduating 20 kids. It's trapped in time. And so it started to get me thinking, I wonder if I could fake a scientific experiment here. If everything else is equal, what is the control that I can say has changed against it, and can we study that? And so the thing I try to study is what has technology and information done to Napoleon and, and in a greater extent, these like small rural communities. And so it's a, just like sets up this idea that if I go back and I find kids like me, who I talked about earlier, I was a really dumb kid. If I find kids like me today and just sit down and talk to them, how different will their lives be? Because everything else is the same, except that they can pull out their phone and listen to any song in the history of recorded music, which would have blown my mind. Or have Wikipedia or just like... All of that, yeah. Just this unlimited access to knowledge. And, you know, to go back to another question, I, I was a very information thirsty kid, but had no information to consume. 
we didn't have cable TV until I was a teenager. And even then, it was 11 channels, and none of them were the good ones. I didn't have MTV. I didn't see MTV until college. And my major outlet for media was the high school library. There was no real library in town. There was just a high school library. Had five magazines. Mm-hmm. And it was really my only access to the outside world. Do you remember which ones they were? Yes, they were Sports Illustrated, okay, U.S. News and World Reports, okay, Newsweek, mm-hmm. Time, mm-hmm. and uh, People. Sure, those not are my bad, five magazines. Not a bad cross. Imagine if that's if the, you know, everything new about the world was from those five magazines. Which are the same 40 writers. <laughs> Just circulating. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that's a very closed world. Many of those are owned by the same media company. I mean, yeah. it's just, <laughs> I think people should go read the piece because there's just a ton in there. And it's, it's a sort of quiet, evocative piece. And it was actually funny to watch the response. Like it was on like Hacker News. And, and like so many people just missed it completely for yeah. what it was. Yeah. But it's a very sort of subtle meditation on, on what's up. And it, it ends up, like most interesting essays, kind of being more about you, meditating on, like, why were you thirsty? Yeah. You know, they they were. And the kids you went back and found, they, they have access to all this information, but they're pretty much, see, I want to say resigned, because I wanted to move to New York City, but they, it's not resigned. They're, like, looking at, like, oh, I'm going to live here, and I'm going to be with my family, and, and life will be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, unlike me, where I talked about not having any idea where Yale even was, they have a very keen sense of the outside world. They understand politics, information in a way that would have blown my mind. And so I was curious if they were more aspirational than I was, because I was definitely not an aspirational person. I was I was inquisitive, but I, I didn't have any dreams of making it big. I, it was the last thing in my mind. And I was surprised to find that every kid I talked to has a very strong awareness, has visited other cities, gone places. And when you ask them what they think their lives will be in 25 years, they all said, I'll probably be back here on the farm having a family. And I just love it here. I love my community. They said the word community over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost think that like someone was drilling it into them or something. Sure. But I was surprised that there was not a, a strong desire to get out. And I even used the phrase get out with some deep hesitation because i don't really think of it that way an escape yeah i don't (laughs) i mean i don't i think their lives are really interesting and great they have they're going to be on the farm with unlimited access to all the world's information and to me that sounds great you know right right right. yeah so i mean for you were you i mean you get out of school you're now let's put it in quotes well-rounded very well yeah um (laughs) no motivation to go back i mean you you talk to all these kids they want to go back home they want to have all these nice things, but they want to be in the community and want to be in that little town. Did you have any desire to go back home? Um, I would say for the for a long time, like decades, I resisted any sort of acknowledging that there was any part of me that had appeal toward it, uh-huh. and mostly because I wanted to go out and experience. Stuff. Yeah, I wanted to live in cities. Eventually, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know growing up, but if it, by the time I got to college, I started to realize, oh man, it'll be it actually might be cool to live in New York, which, again, is like mm-hmm. a thing I never would have conceived of. Right. What was the big thing? Was it like, I want to go see bands? I want to be where there are lots of people? Like, how did you see it in your head? Yes. I would say for me specifically, it wasn't cultural, actually, was people. Even even when I moved to New York, which was 10 years ago, uh, by that time, I remember my first day, I went downstairs and went to the stand on the street where they had Village Voices. Right. 
we skipped an area, but I had a background in alt weeklies and publishing um, that I worked in for a long time. And so the Village Voice like represented something big and important to me. Sure. And I went down to the little newsstand. This was ten years ago. And I went to New York, and it still was there. I don't even know if you can get the Village Voice on the newsstand anymore. Picked up a copy, flipped to the back to find the Film Forum ads, because mm-hmm. I was going to go to Film Forum for the first time. And I was so excited. That was what New York meant to me. It was going to Film Forum. You could just go to that movie theater and yes. pay money and sit in there. It yeah. was so, and it would be some Godard film. Like, it yeah. would be great, great. That I, that's not the kind of thing you can get in North Dakota, um, or even in you know Seattle So in you some have ways. like a little Woody Allen fantasy going. I did. The yeah. funny thing is that culture changed faster than I than I could keep up with. And the reality is I have not picked up a Village Voice since, and I've been to Film Forum once. <laughs> and I, re- I would say that with deep regret. But now you just have everything is so much more immediately there and accessible. And I think it is so much more convenient, easy, and sustainable living wherever you want. And I, I would seem to have no problems living in Grand Forks. I, I think that's culture change. And I think that you have to see something about Amazon Prime change things too. Like sure. you can just in a second get all that stuff in a weird place sent out to you. That's really different. Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about it with anybody, like if you get into some weird cultural niche and you start chatting about it, you'll find other people who want to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So we skipped over your media career outside of New York City. Yeah, so after I graduated from college, I started working at the Daily Newspaper uh, for one very crazy year, which was called the Grand Forks Herald. Uh, This would have been 1997. Okay, so you stayed in town. Just one year. Okay. And that's the punchline of the story is, you might not remember this, but it was a huge story at the time. Grand Forks was the biggest natural disaster of its time. It was pre-Katrina. Uh, but it was a gigantic flood. Right. I do remember that, this. And that the whole town went into water, six feet of water. And I had a second story apartment downtown. And uh, I didn't leave. I was one of the few people who decided to stay. And I woke up in the morning and there's, imagine waking up in your in your little downtown apartment and you look out the window and there's six feet of water on the street. Sure. And I still decided to stay because I was working at the daily newspaper and we had to put out a paper. Mm. And uh, I was the web guy back when people had titles webmaster. Yeah. That's me. I was the webmaster. Sure. This is 94, 95? Uh, 97. 97. And I then, you know, I had to FTP files back and forth with the. So you have to like scan in photos. Yeah. Scan. Well, we had to do everything. I scan photos. And I mean, the press is underwater. So the, the newspaper was owned by Nate Ritter, okay. uh, which is a company that no longer exists either. But the sister. <laughs> publication would have been the St. Paul Pioneer Press, which is, what, four or five hours away. But that's where the paper would be printed. We'd lay it out, they'd print it down there, and they'd drive it up. And they'd drive it up and try to give it out to people, but the whole town's evacuated. Right. (laughs) So there's not really many people to give it to. So they just put it, like, on gas stations nearby out of town as people are fleeing town. 60,000 people evacuated that town. Okay. So that's horrible enough. The craziest thing that happened is that a fire started in the middle of the flood. And I was still living in my in my building and was woken up by firemen yelling I had to get out. And I didn't believe them. I assumed that it was just a way to get the stragglers who had been left behind out of the building. And I had I grabbed the bag that was sitting next to me that had two pairs of jeans and five books in it. And I walked out resignedly out the door with them into the back fire escape. So you thought these were firemen with a hidden agenda. Yeah, they're just trying to get me out of there. They're trying to get people right. to leave. Uh, so I got outside and looked over... And the fireman pointed, and two buildings over, on the sixth floor, there was fire coming out of one window. And I said, well, you'll be able to put that out. 
And they said, no, this whole block's going to go. And I said, why? And then they pointed down, and I could see a little 12-foot boat with firemen with fire hoses. They were diving into the water with the fire hoses, trying to get the hoses connected to the pump. Oh, my God. And they couldn't get any of the water up to put out the fire. Half a downtown bird. Oh, my goodness. And we kept the paper going. It won a Pulitzer Prize. And that was my exit. Like, all of a sudden, I was like, not only was I making news, I was part of the news because I was the person who was interviewed instantly because I lived down there. Right. And I I was being escaped. Uh, So I was interviewed on CNN and NPR and all these places. You're just dropped right in the middle of national media. Exactly. Okay. And I had this crazy story about how firemen had had rescued me. And funny thing happened a couple months later is uh, I got asked to do a video reenactment, uh, like one of those like what one of those TV shows where they do reenactments oh, yeah, of yeah. harrowing events, like yeah. in black and it, white. Yeah, yeah. It was, yes, it was called Stormwatch, <laughs> and I, I had to do a video <laughs> reenactment of myself escaping the fiery inferno. That's funny uh, that they decided the, that it needed to be you again. Yes, I had to. Not our our younger actor. listeners may not remember, <laughs> but there was like a five year media moment before real reality TV kicked in. Yeah. Where reenactments often involving the original people involved yes. in like a often in like a grainy black and white. Yeah, that's weird. Were just a staple of TV. Like yeah. it just worked it's really very well. Discovery Channel ish too. Like you see yeah. this. It was actually on Discovery. That's where it was on. Yeah, and it would yeah. just say reenactment across the bottom, it would, and it became yeah. like a sort of hilarious trope. Yeah. Well, the opening scene is of me laying on my couch with my eyes closed, <laughs> and I have my glasses off, and there's a bang has, on the door. This and has I look to be on up, YouTube. And I put my glasses on, and I run to the door, <laughs> and then we shot that scene like. Eight times because I kept looking in the camera. I couldn't not yeah, look at the I camera. Mean, what are you going to do? Horrible. I was a horrible actor. Just horrible. <laughs> like, and I was playing myself, and I that's couldn't do thing. it. No, but it, that's they were so campy. They were so, like yes. you were just part of the process, but they were always so amazing. Right. And you're what, like 22? Yes, I was 22, and I'd lost everything I had ever owned. Right, except for those yeah. five books and two pairs of jeans. And I wasn't really happy about doing any of this, but it was like, sure, I'll do your video reenactment. I mean, a show. typical 22 year old life is completely surreal. Anyway, like everything thing is new and coming at you you're like am i supposed to get married or like buy a bicycle like you've no no clue about the next step and then you're just dropped in the middle of complete chaos and then media insanity yes and i guess the upside of all of that is that all of the attention allowed me to uh, eventually get a media job in minneapolis and i started writing for or i actually became the editor of a magazine you'll remember this genre of magazine it was reviews of websites yeah, like Yahoo Internet Life yes, it and was, those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yahoo Internet Life was our chief competitor. Oh, um, yeah, the gold star. Our publication was called Web Guide Monthly. Sure. And all it was was capsule reviews, 100 word long, of all of the websites that came out that month. And a That's couple amazing. of columns and one or two features. But really what people got the magazine for was, much like TV Guide back in the day, to see, oh, here are the new websites that have come out that I can because peruse. Because people had yet to truly conceive of the search engine as the connective yep. tissue. So the media was still performing that role. Yeah. Yahoo yeah. was the directory. Yeah, and if you time. were one of the people making web stuff, getting into one of these directories was kind of a big deal. Like you were going to yes. get another 100 or 200 people to come visit your site. The magazine even looked like a directory. Like there was categories for religion and sure. sports. And so here's 10 new sports sites. And... And so that magazine did pretty well. It sold 
to Ziff Davis. And then after that, I got another job in a magazine editing something called Fate. And Fate is the one of the oldest publications in America, but for sure the oldest paranormal publication. Oh. And it's mostly user-generated content. That is people submitting stories about of like, their Bigfoot sighting. Whoa. Or their UFO abductions. Okay, now. Wait, wait, let's, let's, wait, wait. Where, where is this? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. St. Paul, second. Minnesota. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. We can't just gloss over no, this. No, no, we're not. We're going, we're going to stay right, with This is where we're going to deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, how big is this office? Oh, well, Fate was owned by a, the biggest New Age publisher in America at the time called Llewellyn Books, so, which was a huge place, hundreds okay. of employees. Our magazine was, I think I had five or six employees. Are you the editor of Fate? Yeah. Okay, so you're the editor of Fate. Are oh. you seeking this job? Like, are you thinking, you know what, Paranormal, well, that's something that really resonates with me. I need, I would I, love to work no, here. No, it's more like I or, lived in Minneapolis and there was a limited number of magazines you could work at. Okay. Um, it was so, those two and Utney Reader. And I didn't get the Utney Reader job. Okay, so you were pretty indifferent. And you you took this job. Oh, I thought not I was, out of a passion. No, 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 I had, no, no. That's not true. Like I, what I got hired to do was actually turn it into a pop culture magazine. Like the whole idea I was see. that we were going to rebrand this thing that the average age of the subscriber was like seventy. Let's give um, it to Sorgatz. He's a bright young guy. Yeah, and all, at the time there was all the stuff that was going on in pop culture that would make this vehicle work. So the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire mm-hmm. Slayer and all, all this it. kind of paranormal, even hip-hop was even... No, there like, were like reenactments of ghost sightings on TV. Yeah, well, the cheesy stuff, but even good stuff was out yeah. there. Like, I do remember, like, there was this phase where hip-hop was obsessed with, like, space and, like, diggable planets and stuff like that. Right. All of that fit into the worldview, and there's cults and stuff. And so the whole idea was to make it a so mainstream... Bridge, bridge that. Too. Yeah, with, with this old stuff, because before what it was, it was just crazy old men seeing ufos <laughs> so what i love is that you're kind of i i share this with you where it's you're just kind of like ambiguously ambitious where you're like i know i need to do something else and then yes. but you're not there's no like grand plan you're not like yeah. i'm getting on that bus and going to port authority bus terminal and i'm going to be the editor of newsweek magazine it's like oh paranormal yeah, yeah okay you could convince yourself that that'll be really interesting too, and it was, especially in your twenties, right? Yeah. You're like, "Holy cow! I've got a, I've got an empire of paranormal shenanigans." Yeah. Are you aware of the concept of the slush pile? Oh yeah. yeah. So, okay. So tell tell our listeners actually, so, it may not be. Yeah, magazines have this idea of the slush pile, which is basically just what comes in the mail that day. It's the submissions. I think the New Yorker's slush pile is probably most notorious uh, out there. But it's all the submissions that have, have come in from people who are hoping to get published in the magazine. The slush pile for Fate was amazing. Oh, it must be. And I can't believe I didn't save it because... That's the it would be, we all want. Yeah. I could have written 50 books about it. Uh, it was so much good stuff. And my favorite one was a big manila envelope, not folded, but when you opened it up, it was about 15 standard 8.5 by 11 pieces of paper taped together into a gigantic poster that you hung on the wall, clearly printed out with like a dot matrix printer. And when you put it up on the wall, it looked maybe like a Kandinsky. But there's a little note card that came with it that said, my Bigfoot sighting. Whoa. And it was just like you stare at it going, where in here is the Bigfoot? (laughs) So it's actually kind of a great piece of art at that point. It really was. It was like... And you think so many things. Does he really see something here? It was all blurry and... You just can't stop thinking about yeah. that, can you? <laughs> Somewhere out there, he 
I'm pretty sure he really believed he saw something in that thing. So alien abductions, I'm guessing, were big. Yeah, I remember there was a stat back then that like something like 40% of the country had said they'd been abducted by an alien, some absurdly high number. And so we got tons of those. I think that's whenever any butt stuff happened to Americans, they were just sort of like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> for sure. This is the only explanation for that. For sure. So ghost sightings? Are ghosts, were oh, ghosts kind ghosts of like out big. of fashion or were they, do they stay in? Again, it's in the old audience stuff that was big. When we tried to modernize it, we threw out all the, like, my first prognosis was that we will not do a Loch Ness Monster story. That was my first, because we don't want every year. And it's like, we're throwing Loch Ness Monster out. Um, I gotta say, this is a TV show, right? Because you're in there just like, <laughs> damn it, ghosts are over. <laughs> so like, I, scratch, scratch. And you, and you could see, like, the old people there, the old guard, did not really love that I was not acknowledging their old myths, and I wanted to, like talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer instead. Right, right, And they didn't right. like that at all. And I was like, no, I care. I care about your runestones and your oh, yeah. knowing your zodiac sign and all that stuff, which is stuff they really cared about. They're into like, they want to wear cloaks and go yes. into the woods. Yes. Yeah. So that, was, that was a really fun time. How long were you at Fate? Um, two years, almost two years. How did that pop culture transition go? Uh, they pulled the funding after the first issue. <laughs> 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 that that actually, I'm sure that was a bad week, but so the, it, it the, makes for a better story. I have the the first cover issue was um, this show that Chris Carter, the creator of the X Files, did called Harsh Realm, which okay. I think was his third show. Um, that was the cover story. I interviewed Chris Carter for it. He of course knew Fate because Fate was at one time kind of famous. Like Stephen King wrote for it, yeah. and. and in the '70s with like Yuri Geller or that era of time, like it was a big deal. Have you ever heard Yuri Geller's album? I don't think so. No. It is one of the most special artifacts. You can find a lot of it on YouTube. He made an <laughs> album of like new age. Yuri Geller is a, a guy who can bend spoons with his mind. I'm oh, making air okay. quotes as I tell you this. Yeah. There are songs about like bending spoons. Yeah. We used to listen to it in college over and over. We had some, uh, my roommate had it on vinyl. It literally is the most ridiculous. I, I've I'm listened. trying to imagine what it'd be like. Is it chanting? No, it's is very. It, is it like Frank Zappa? Like, no, it's very like. <laughs> Produced Aquarius style, like, huh. but he has a very creepy voice. He's yeah. Like, oh, think to yourself, spoon, bend, <laughs> bend. Anyway, so yeah, okay. I remember this. I remember there's a lot of like fate ends up collaged in the 80s. Yes. In a lot of weird like zine art. Yes. Yeah. The other funny thing about fate was that when I came in, it was um, digest style. Like, the, sure. The like small, Reader's Digest yeah, size. The small format, and I blew it up into an actual big magazine with full color and everything. You were taking fate all the way. We were going to town. <laughs> it's, it's an alternate history to imagine if that had actually worked. <laughs> and then after that, I I think I started blogging right around that time. You've been in, at this point, you've had the college experience, but then you've also been at the small town paper. You've gotten a big prize. You've been part of reporting. You've seen global media like CNN, and you've seen how the sausage is made. And then you're inside of a media conglomerate producing a magazine. So that's a pretty intense career arc. Yeah, uh, we don't have... I mean, we're looking over sort of your timeline here. I mean, we don't have time to cover sort of how you you progress. You must be really good at cocktail parties. <laughs> I've been like, to a cocktail party with Rex. He's I good. mean, the... Although editor occasionally of fate, you're just sort of like, I'm going to hang right here. Editor of Fate usually 
if you follow that path, like if you told me predict the rest of this timeline after he became editor of Fate, it's sort of you sort of took the dirt road off the main highway. Back to blogging. Yeah. And then you end up down in this weird path. So yeah. you start Femoculus. Yeah, uh, two things happened right after Fate, which is I started Femoculus, which was in that early era of blogging. Yeah. I think it was 2000, 2001, somewhere in there I started. I remember and it too because it was very, it was sort of tightly written and kind of sweet. Thank you. So many blogs at that point were either like, I had a bad cup of coffee with yeah. my ex-husband, or they were like, I'm going to write something so fast and clippy, and none of you will get to follow along unless you're my best friend ever. And you were actually kind of writing, which I remember and appreciate. Yeah. Um, here's a Paul Ford story. I actually emailed you because I was a big admirer of your blog. Oh, Jesus. And I had just gotten a big media company job. And you had just written a very long post about XML. <laughs> uh, and uh, we were... Those were the days. Oh, that's, this story is not going to end well, even if it ends well. All <laughs> do, right. you remember, do you remember this post? Like you were the person who popularized, like might be the right word, the transition of tech companies toward using XML, XSL infrastructures, mostly because of all the markups stuff that you were doing. And I had just gotten a job running the website for the Olympics. Whoa. And I emailed you and I said, I want to do everything in XML. Can I talk to you about it? <laughs> what an email. <laughs> oh. All right. So first of all, let's just cover it. Like, this is the, the NBC Olympic site. Yeah. So, so this is a big deal. What year are we looking at here? Uh, 2004, 2006. Okay. Did I write back? Was I good? Yeah. We wrote back and gave me some tips and said, <laughs> you basically said good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something like, that's a big project. I don't have that email account anymore. I would love to go look it up. That's well, great. Let's see if we can find it. Well, how did how'd it go? The, the website for the Olympics? Yeah. Well, that was crazy. Like, there's no media event quite like the Olympics where you wait, and then you wait, and then you wait, and you prep, and you prep, and you prep, and you have like five viewers, and then 15 viewers. And then explosion. And then all of a sudden, for two weeks, you have 100 million viewers. Right. And then you're back down to five or 15 again. <laughs> right. like, it's just so, a moment. Yeah. There's so much infrastructure, so much sure. planning. And it's, I guess it's like a sports event. I can't think of anything else to compare it to. Yeah. And it no must have been just this insane like flow of content over those two weeks. Yes. Yeah, so all you're what, doing is training it, for that moment to yeah. happen. It has like the worst and most insane schema too. Like Olympic data is famous for yes. it. Yeah. The Times did like a white label version of all the Olympic data and they made, they printed out the schema. And there's a, a woman named Jackie Mayer who was involved with it. And there's a photo of her holding it up. And it's like her arms are fully outstretched to hold up the insanity of this, the representation of the Olympic data. They called it the horse blanket, yeah. that picture. Yeah, that's one of the things I was in charge of was taking that massive data feed and making it into pretty data graphics. So this stuff, is so. deeply nerdy. At yeah, that point. I was gonna say, are you tech? Yeah. I mean, would you consider yourself technical at this point in time? Or yeah, I had. To... Throughout that story, somehow I had picked up programming at a pretty rudimentary level, but I was reading all the mm-hmm. books and the theory. So I and I had written my own CMS to, for my blog because it was, okay, that's it was not pre- trivial. I mean, that's yeah, that's the real deal. I should say it wasn't Cold Fusion though, which yeah, <laughs> was the language of the time. There's but, no judgment. Um, we're yeah. going to have Matt Howie in here later, and, and he's, uh, you know, I mean, that's Metafilter. Like, Cold Fusion oh. was a transitional technology for a lot of people who thought, I have no business programming. Well, but then it was, it's like, wait a minute. It was this like just looks HTML. Like, it looks like, like yeah. HTML, yeah. and I can, I can get away with some really powerful things here. And most of the listeners, well, maybe some of the listeners aren't going to know what we're talking about. But it was actually 
thoughtfully designed. Yeah. And the experience around it was about was really empathetic to the person who doesn't who doesn't have a comp sci degree, but rather is comfortable with, you know, bold and italics tags, but doing really powerful things. And you know, PHP, especially at that point, like PHP's changed a lot, but it was a garbage fest compared to Cold Fusion. But it was really easy and really free and you could get free web hosting with it. But Cold Fusion was actually for the more grown up, like catalog driven sites with teams of five or six. Yeah. I found the email. It's actually very charming. First of all, you're writing me from ibsys.com. Yeah, that's, that's the name of the company, Internet Broadcasting Systems, <laughs> which has an acronym of IBS, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and that's why my aim handle to this day is IBS Rex. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Paul, I imagine a process where you create a list of 100 categories and you start to do the markup, at which point you say, oh, we forgot this and this and this, and suddenly you have a list of 1,000, and then infinitude strikes, and you are cursing Cantor and Wittgenstein equally. <laughs> that was how, that's how Rex introduced himself. How am I Hi, get, I'm Rex. How am I going to get Paul Ford's <laughs> Let attention? Let uh, me show that I have a philosophy degree. Right, exactly. <laughs> One of my three. That, and I'm like, that describes the process exactly. It's actually, you're telling me about this project, and I'm, I'm like gonna be a monster let me know if you need any freelancing help from my web brain i'm right here in brooklyn i was like so desperate at that point or if you need resources i know lots of nyc copywriters designers user experience folks. i'm coming on so strong i'm just Rex, please no stress if not i always ask just in case yeah we were supposed to meet that'd be great drop a line anytime i'm in town nine days out of ten i like talking but you never met content for a we while meet for, until later yeah yeah like a couple years ago we met yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's just sort of always in the in the same universe. Yeah. So you're gonna do you do the Olympics? Yeah, we did the website for the two Olympics. How'd that go? Uh, it was good. I mean, I learned a ton. It was my first exposure in the trenches of big media. It got me connected to other people around NBC, which led to a job in Seattle working at MSNBC.com. Sure. Which people sometimes forget that the MS in MSNBC is, is Microsoft. Microsoft. That's right. So I was a Microsofty for a couple of years. I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> I remember every day. Yeah. And I did not uh, love Seattle. I always have to temper myself on this one because I've gotten in trouble for it before. But I think partially it was that I lived downtown and I had to commute out to Redmond every day. Right. So I, I saved that for a says, couple of years. We know people who are. I mean, if you are at Microsoft, you just might as well be at Microsoft. Like, don't don't try to have any other life. It's true, and I was still young enough that I wanted to have a like a party hangout kind of life. And Seattle seemed interesting at the time, but man, I just kept meeting people that I always say it's a city that has project managers who want to be vice presidents. Like it's a lot of just wow. a oh, lot of rough. Amazon people. A lot of that's Microsoft a rough tagline people. for <laughs> Seattle tourism, right there. Oh, I get, I get. I always get in trouble when I talk about Seattle. So yeah, yes. we can up. move on. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love Let's, to hear what you're up to today. Now, not today, today, but these days. So, I mean, you started a company in 2008 called Kind of Sort of Media. Yep. What were the things that people were coming to you to do? That's post. MSNBC. Yeah, right after that. Yeah. Okay, so you come back to New York City, and you're like, hey, remember me? I'm Rex. Mm-hmm. This is my consulting firm. Yeah, exactly. And at the time, it was a very strong startup community burgeoning in the city. Tumblr had just started. HuffPo was a year old. BuzzFeed was doing something different, but was still around. Everyone had a social app at the time. Right. Uh, I had a company called VU that was a video chat 
company. And it was a really exciting time in New York because the, the phrase New York tech scene was used for the first time. Right. At least and mobile, in, in a very mobile mainstream is starting way. to actually happen right there. Mobile too. happens yeah. right at that moment. And so at first I was just consulting with all these startups and helping them build and market new products, doing a little bit of everything for everyone. And the business looked a lot like a consultancy that took equity in companies. And uh, some of those companies did well, and uh, which I wouldn't realize until years later. And then over the last, over those five, six, seven years, everything's transitioned from startups in town to big media companies making startups. That's the yeah. way I like to think about it. And that's the big transition for me is that I don't have a single startup client anymore. It's almost entirely media companies trying to build new things that look like startups. Sure. I mean, that's that's our world partly, that's, too. We yeah. see that a lot. Yeah. So that's somebody at a major network might call you and be like, hey, we're, gonna, we're launching this new thing, and we need to get the mobile strategy in place for it. That's right. Exactly. And as you guys are probably the same way, earlier the better, so we can figure out like big problems first. Right. And then... I help them build teams if they want to do that. So I do a lot of hiring for them and, okay. and stuff like that. People know to come to you with a pretty blank slate. And they're just like, okay, we got to get this done. I have roughly this budget. Might have to get that out of them. Yeah. We have a, the germ of an idea. And can you help us get to the finish line? And also, if you're building a media experience, like a mobile experience, one of the things that no one pays attention to that it seems like it's kind of one of your things is, is day two. Like you're going to have to have people put things into the boxes after we set up the boxes. <laughs> yeah. It isn't just developers and designers. It's a lot of hiring the right editors. And, and in a way I, I play like the role of a general manager for six months. And then with the goal of trying to find a really good person to become that general manager after I, I, I go. I, I think of that. We do stuff similar to that. And it, it, I think of it as sort of like you're shipping the business, not just the tech. Like you can get the tech is, is about half of it. Yeah, And then they actually have to have a, a business to go with it. Yeah. Okay. But that's not what you're doing mostly right now. Yeah. Starting this year, I just decided that I was going to dedicate much more time to writing. And so that back channel piece uh, that we talked about was the outcome of that. Netflix okay. and ch-ch-chill. Yeah. <laughs> um, Great piece. Okay title. Great piece. I might re- is, is it too late to go back and change Not it? Is at there all. any ethics it's, against that? I'll throw me- that title. It's medium. You can do it. <laughs> I, can do, I can edit. And I'm working on a couple other magazine pieces. I have a couple book proposals out there floating around, uh, one of which is based an extension of that back channel piece into a lar- larger form. And I mean, I, I looked at my hero, Paul Ford, and said, hey, can I be an engineer and, and also a writer at the same time because you're churning out stuff like crazy at a pace I've never seen. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you also have a company going on, which <laughs> baffles my mind. I don't, know but... to, I don't know how to say no to anything. <laughs> like Literally, like, rich, I don't know how to say no to. I don't know how to say no to cupcakes. I don't know how to say no to editors. It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, you actually seem pretty happy for someone who's mostly writing. I get, in a, I get very depressed. I get very, like, I, I don't... I no longer feel that any interaction with human beings is possible after I go too far down the writing hole. I definitely know that feeling. I'd say I, I was really down on New York like at last year or so. It can happen. I was just like tired of the grimy feeling that you have to kind of rub off yourself out with a night, night of people who are very eager to tell you about what they're working on. Yeah. And, and <laughs> um, there's a kind of constant self-promotion kind of quality of the city. I sort of feel, and, it's like somebody is licking your face. Yeah. yeah. And I got, after nine years, I'd gotten really tired of it. So 
retreating into writing actually strangely made me a lot more happy, I think, because I didn't, I just decided I didn't have to play that game anymore and right. be out there rubbing shoulders and all that stuff. So you can enjoy the city, but without all the people. Yeah, I might go to film forum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you are, if people need to find you, they can send you an email. What's your preferred email these days? Just rexsorgats at gmail. At IBS. IBS Rex. systems. That will not get there. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're going to leave here today. Are you going to go do some writing? going to have some coffee? What are you going to do? Uh, I'm probably going to go to the library and do research for a book I'm writing. Can you tell us what the subject is? It's a guidebook to understanding this culture we live in that is constantly barraging us with fakery, deception, deceit. Uh, it's called The Encyclopedia of Fakes. This is great. This is the other side of fate. <laughs> it, it, it is in a way, yeah. That's actually going to be the title of this episode, The Other Side of Fate. There we go. Perfect. Perfect. Rex, thank you so much for thank coming on to our podcast. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. it this was, was a lot of fun. It was great having you here. Yeah. Great having you here. Hey, you know, Rich, there's not a lot to say at the end of this podcast. No. But I hope I... It speaks I, for itself. I tried to bring the energy up. I'm going to give you like a solid B+. I didn't expect you to judge me yeah, on well, the plot, you should same podcast. Me to judge you. Okay. I'll judge you next one. All right. One. If you go to iTunes, if you're like stumbling home drunk and you go to iTunes, and because that's kind of on the way to the other things that you do on your computer, you monster, uh, and you happen to see our podcast and you rate it really, really well... A magical leprechaun will come to your house and give you all the gold. So that's just something that you should know. Uh, other than that, I'm Paul Ford. I'm Rich Ciotti. This is Track Changes, the official podcast of the Post Light Agency. We'll build your app. You just get in touch by writing us at contact at postlight.com. Yay. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.